This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore, and this is KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for joining us today. Ahead this hour, the Arkansas-based Duo de Venus recently came to the Furman Garner Performance Studio to talk with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith about winning a major award at this fall's Latino Music Awards in Chicago and perform their song, Esclavos del Pasado. And Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth explains why wild turkey populations in Arkansas are growing. We start today's show with a conversation with Saladin Ahmed, this year's guest of the University of Arkansas Scholars at Risk Committee. Ahmed is a visiting professor of political science at Union College in Schenectady, New York, and the author of several books, including his latest, Revolutionary Hope After Nihilism. Marginalized Voices and Dissent. His talk on campus last week continues an annual part of the university's observation of International Education Week. The Scholars at Risk Committee raises awareness of the threats to intellectual freedom that exist around the world and the very real threats of safety to many people who speak out. When Saladin Ahmed came to the Carver Center for Public Radio last week, I asked him about one of the words in his latest book title, Hope. For a good part of the book, I actually argue against false hope. So I'm not a big fan of uh, advocating false or fake hope just to to make ourselves feel better about the world. The world is definitely not in a in a good state as we speak. and for many reasons, but uh, those reasons, I, I try to summarize them in the book. So the first part of the book, uh, basically the crises we live in, mainly globally. And those crises, I give just two examples. For uh, One would be the rise of extremism, uh, exclusionary movements, Again, globally, but also with specific examples in the East and and the West. Um, And then uh, the ecological crisis, of course, and its implications uh, for all of us. So uh, and I do think that the the approach that uh, takes, uh, let's say, hope on in the uh, let's say psychological level or on the sp- even spiritual level, I dare to say, uh, are problematic on many levels, and they even contribute, I argue, to the problems, to the crises. So, uh, to summarize, I argue basically that hope, uh, in the most uh, concrete political sense, exists precisely in the margins and under circumstances where a lot of hopeless people or a lot of people live under hopeless uh, uh, social, economical, and uh, political uh, circumstances. They invent hope. The problem is that because they are marginalized, we uh, tend to ignore them. We simply don't know about those social movements. and again, the conclusion is that if we have any hope, really, to get out of all these crises, uh, is to learn from those movements uh, that continually, even historically, they have been uh, the pioneers of inventing new uh, horizons of possibility, if you will. To, to learn from the margins means to ask and to listen. I mean, that's 
go take place? Uh, precisely. To ask and to listen, but also most importantly, to unlearn. Uh, to unlearn our uh, our uh, false knowledge or false realism about the world, uh, whether locally or, or beyond. Uh, to unlearn prejudices, to uh, unlearn uh, facts that might be, well, they are facts, they're true, but not necessarily truth. So they don't necessarily represent what should be. Uh, they only represent what is out there. And uh, the, philosophically speaking, because my background is philosophy, so as a philosopher, I think uh, something could be true as a fact, uh, but not uh, philosophical truth, if you will. So then if there is any, uh, any uh, essential uh, pedagogical task, then for me as an educator in this case would be uh, how to... Uh, unlearn those those uh, facts that are there but shouldn't be, and and examples like that, of course, I uh, I can refer to uh, Herbert Marcuse, one of the members of the Frankfurt School, um, uh, Jewish intellectual, uh, German Jewish intellectuals who who left Germany. A lot of them came to the United States. One of them is Herbert Marcuse. Uh, Herbert Marcuse, for example, says uh, uh, or makes the case that when we say we as humans are free, what we mean is that we should be free. We are inherently free, but it doesn't necessarily mean we all know that. We, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are free in the in the current situation. Uh, so that distinction is important, and it is important to also realize that for. For people uh, who are marginalized uh, in in more than one sense, sometimes simply the the question of survival uh, becomes a, a question of create literally creating hope, and politically, I think that is that's extremely important. Yeah, it sounds like a, a basic step for the individual is. To know yourself and, and, and try to figure out what you do need to unlearn or what may be false? Uh, yes and no. Like, okay. of course, the, the process uh, ultimately is an individual, uh, individual task, but, but it is also uh, it's something beyond those uh, self-help approach. So... It is it, the crisis. The crisis is social, and whenever we we have uh, a, 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 we end up with a, a social world where, uh, let's say, alienation, all kinds of uh, isolation become the norm. Then there's no way out mm -hmm. except uh, rebuilding or building a healthy social environment where. Uh, every human is respected. Every human uh, dignity is respected regardless of backgrounds and elitist theories and, and narratives and so on and so forth. And we have a lot of obstacles there to deal with. You know, how, 
how we have othered each other continually, historically, in the name of religion, in the name of ethnicity, nationality, and today, unfortunately, also in the name of culture. Uh, so culture is one of the targets I try to uh, to undo, basically, because it it seems to be um, today's uh, you know more acceptable uh, term for race. Uh, so it and and again I, I it is also very important to remember that racism, whether in its old forms or in its newer forms like cultural racism, uh, doesn't have to happen uh, in terms of bad intentions. So mm-hmm. sometimes, yeah, people who are involved or people who commit racism have good intentions. So that's not the question. That would be the easy approach. Uh, the problem is that most of the times uh, people commit racism, discrimination, and so on, uh, with good intentions. So, and that is also to suggest that the, a lot of these problems are really not moral problems per se. Of course, they are moral problems. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, immorality and morality are the same, but but the, the, the root causes are not there. So the, the, that would be just misleading to, uh, uh, to, to lecture people about good and bad and so on. And in general, uh, I think uh, human beings have a good sense of uh, what is good, and in general, we tend uh, to be peaceful, right? Except then we have these syst- value systems and systems of myths and, and uh, weird ideologies that are normalized and internalized, and then. Uh, we will have in those cases normal human beings who would commit abnormal things, uh, acts of discrimination or even acts of physical violence, whether in, uh, whether that happens in the name of patriotism or nationalism or uh, faith, whatever it is. But I mean, my point is that uh, uh, normally. Um, uh, if we have an ideal case, which is really even in terms of imagination, it's impossible to assume. But if there were such a thing for a moment, if we could imagine w- what that would entail, you know, a, a human society without all that uh, historical background and, and, and relations of domination, in general, that would, I think... Uh, we tend to be more peaceful rather than violent. So I guess what I'm suggesting is that when we witness cases of violence, uh, there must be, we should be looking for uh, those attempts that uh, that created uh, discrimination, created othering, created a hierarchy, and definitely created uh, domination, relations of domination. Uh, because if I belong to the privileged, a privileged group, and these are all social conditions, mm-hmm. obviously, so it's not that you don't have one human being just by nature always, right, dominant or dominated. But 
when I belong to a social, uh, 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 in general, I'd a uh, privileged social group, then my politics, my view of the world, or my perception of things tends to be tilted, so to speak, towards my own and my group's interests. Can we? Uh, realistically, if, if historically we have been marginalizing and practicing racism and totalitarianism and fascism for millennia, can we realistically get past that? Absolutely, yeah. And I say that not at all as uh, w- w- with uh, uh, idealist uh, mm. intention, not at all. Uh, but realistically, yes, because that that reality itself, even the so-called uh, human nature, uh, which is another myth in my view, I, d- I don't believe there's such a thing as human nature, but even what we perceive as human nature is a product of history, of that history, right? And if that is the case, then we could also undo it through... Uh, what we think, what we uh, unlearn, what we learn, what we say, and what we do, and definitely what we don't do. So it could go either way. Uh, but but this is obviously a, a social uh, struggle, a, a large uh, social struggle that uh, necessitates uh, solidarity uh, on all levels. Uh, am I talking about like a possible paradise on earth? Not at all. But uh we are we are living anyway we are engaged in politics anyway even when we think we are not even those of us who, who claim uh, every day that we don't like politics we are still involved in politics so i think yes if we tend to uh quit some of those habits for example i suggest a very important uh, uh question or, or principle in this case would be um, how to defend the rights of people who are different from me, not just my group, because there's, that is, there is no, th- th- there's nothing genius or noble about defending my group, so what? Yeah. Right. But the moment we have a world, if we, if more of us work towards a world in which uh, the, marginali- the, the, the marginalization itself uh, it doesn't exist. In other words, when uh, we defend the rights of those who are different in whatever sense, geographically, or, or there's a distance between us, when uh, anti-Semitism, for example, doesn't bother only perceived Jews, when uh, sexism doesn't bother only women, when, uh, I don't know, when anti-black racism doesn't, is not just a question for uh, African-Americans, for example, then there there is immediate hope, I think. And there are people who can be inspiring for all of us in that very sense, in today's world. Saladin Ahmed is a visiting professor of political science at Union College in Schenectady, New York. And he's the author of several books, including his latest, Revolutionary Hope After Nihilism, 
Marginalized Voices and Dissent. He was on the University of Arkansas campus last week as a guest of the University of Arkansas Scholars at Risk Committee. That was part of the campus observation of International Education Week. This is Ozarks at Large. As of yesterday, 12 bills have been filed by lawmakers ahead of the session that begins January 9th. Representative Aaron Pilkington, a Republican from Knoxville, has filed a slate of bills related to health care. One would require Medicaid to cover and reimburse pregnant women for depression screening. Another would extend Medicaid coverage for one year postpartum, while a third bill would allow pharmacists to distribute prophylactic drugs to help prevent HIV infections. And a final bill filed by Pilkington would seek to discourage employers from paying for their workers to get abortions out of state. Employers would be required to provide 16 weeks of paid maternity leave if they opt to cover travel expenses or the cost of the procedure itself. As Arkansas lawmakers are preparing for next year's legislative session, Senator Jonathan Dismang, a Republican from BB, co-chair of the Joint Budget Committee, says a proposed budget presented recently by outgoing Governor Asa Hutchinson was missing a lot of details, but that's to be expected at this early stage. Senator Dismang says there are a lot of challenges in planning. We're in a completely different environment as far as the, bu- as far as the budget. You know, in the past, when we budget, we've had, you know, 2% growth, 3% growth. That's something that's very easy to account for. Now we're in this high inflation, you know, period, inflationary period. And, you know, in some sectors are going to have 20, 30% increase. Uh, others are going to have a, a much lower. And, and being able to figure out how we're going to plug that into the budget is going to be interesting. It's going to be a lot more challenging than anything we've done before. Senator Dismang says one key issue that will be addressed is providing increases for education funding. Expanding prisons, he says, is another priority. Legislators begin the session in January. This is KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman, Operations Manager. You know, if you look hard enough, there's always something to be thankful for, right? Maybe it's as simple as a nice hot cup of coffee. Sometimes it's a bit complicated, like help for a loved one going through a rough stretch. I think that I'm most thankful right now For those groups and individuals that tirelessly work for those in our community, the KUAF community, to help them reach a dignified, respected, and valued life. Groups like Seven Hills Homeless Center, Peace at Home Family Shelter, Magdalene Serenity House, CASA of Northwest Arkansas, and so, so many others. And you hear about them each and every day here on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman, wishing you the best of this holiday season. And if you can, try to help out a nonprofit that's making a difference in your community because your voice matters. Just ahead on Ozarks at Large, Congressman Steve Womack. He was reelected by the voters of the 3rd District earlier this month, and he'll talk with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics, about what he expects from the next Congress. And later, The music of Duo Divinas from inside the Furman Garner Performance Studio. Picado es decir que nos amamos por quedar bien con la gente. Picado es estarlo intentando y no hacer lo suficiente. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez Smith brings us their story later this hour. 
Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 8, and noon to 6, Sunday, in downtown Bentonville. WalmartMuseum.com for more. The United States House is back in the hands of the Republican Party. The GOP earned a slim majority after votes were counted across the country earlier this month. Arkansas sent all four incumbent Republican members of the House back to Washington, including Steve Womack from Rogers. Ruby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, reached Congressman Womack to discuss the upcoming new Congress. Roby asked him what committees he'll be working with as the new Congress is gaveled into session. Scott sure. I'm a senior appropriator, and uh, for those that don't pay attention to Congress and, and the discretionary budget, there are 12 separate subcommittees, 12 different titles and appropriations. And right now I'm the ranking member, the senior Republican on the Financial Services and General Government Subcommittee, which uh, cuts quite a swath across the federal agencies. When you go from the Department of the Treasury to the Judiciary to the Executive Office of the White House, you've got uh, quite a bit of stroke there. And my expectation is, is that I will be the cardinal on that subcommittee. Uh, Now, there there are some things that have to happen between now and then, i.e. waivers uh, for some of the other subcommittee chairs the Tom Coles and Mike Simpsons of the world, uh, but assuming that they stay where they are and there are no musical chairs going on within the committee, uh, I expect to be the FSGG chairman. All right. Um, Outgoing Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has indicated she will not be part of Democratic leadership going forward. Politics aside, what's your assessment of what type of speaker she has been for her party? You know, if, if you judge the... Uh, effectiveness of a speaker by their ability to get things done, maintain control and order, particularly in slim majorities. And she she had a very slim majority this last go round. Uh, I, look, I give her high marks for how she was able to corral uh, all of the people in her caucus. And she's got some rambunctious people in her caucus, the <laughs> AOCs, the squad, those kind of people. We have the same dynamic going on on our side. So from, a, from an effectiveness standpoint, the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is as good as there is uh, in terms of speakership. Now, we we can disagree all day long on policy, and we do, and we think there's a different path for America to uh, really restore kind of the American exceptional, uh, the exceptional nature of our country. So, and and we will begin the process of doing that, but that's going to bring about a challenge for uh, the prospective speaker, Kevin McCarthy, with a three or four seat majority uh, and, uh, you know, keeping, uh, I think Boehner put it pretty well one day when he said, you know, the job of the speaker is keep all the jumping frogs in the wheelbarrow at the same time. And we've got a lot of jumping frogs in, in our caucus. <laughs> and how are you going to be able to keep them together is going to be an exercise in, uh, uh, in leadership. There are going to be some tough moments for us. going to be some hard votes for us. Um, but at the end of the day, I think uh, we're up to the challenge and we'll frame that 2024 cycle by uh, how effective we are in uh, uh, prosecuting the, the role of the government, at least from the House's perspective. All right. Things that I have gleaned from media reports that will be priorities in this re- Republican led uh, U.S. House inflation, spending, oversight investigating Hunter Biden, impeaching Joe Biden. Uh, Some of this sounds like policy. Some of this sounds like revenge. What do you think Republicans should be focused on? What will you be focused on? I think the American public 
uh, the, the discerning voters gave the House Republicans uh, the mandate to govern in the House uh, specifically because there are a lot of kitchen table issues uh, affecting everybody, um, not the least of which is high gas prices and uh, high, uh, high everything, you know, with, with these inflationary spirals. We've got issues on the border. Uh, we've got issues with debt and deficit and CRs and omnibuses. And, and I think they just felt like that we're going to give this other side an opportunity to govern and it will be up to us to do it. Now, are we going to spend our time doing revenge politics, which are investigations, impeachments, and other sorts of activities that you and I both know and the public should know is not going to go very far, particularly with a Democrat Senate and a Democrat in the White House, or going to stand up and, and put forward the policies that we think uh, can restore the exceptional nature of our country again. And I think that's where I mean, if I'm calling the shots, that's where I would like to see us go. Not that those other things aren't important. Accountability certainly a big issue for a lot of people. But at the end of the day, I think we've got to be able to make government work for the people again, and that would be our charge. Congressman Steve Womack talked with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. There's more from that conversation, by the way, at talkbusiness.net. Some good news for turkey hunters and bird lovers in Arkansas. Earlier this fall, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission reported the results of its annual wild turkey population survey, which showed some of the most promising numbers in at least a decade. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. The Arkansas Game and Fish Commission is seeing signs of a rebounding wild turkey population. That's according to the results of a 2022 wild turkey population survey, which shows some of the best reproduction in the state since nearly 2012. AGFC Turkey Program Coordinator Jeremy Wood says the apparent increase in wildfowl is most likely due to the weather. This year, you know, we ended up observing one of the highest uh, reproductive indices um, estimates in really the last decade, uh, which is was really encouraging for, for populations. We've, we've had some relatively cool, wet springs as of late, but the last couple of years have, have started to a little bit more drier, a little warmer, and that's generated some, some better reproduction. For nearly two decades, weather in Arkansas was mostly bad for wild turkeys, with wet and cold conditions killing off many poults or young turkeys, and that sent the state's population into a sharp decline. Typically, Wood says you need about 1.8 poults per hen to maintain a stable population. He says participants in the 2022 survey recorded an average of 1.79 poults per hen in the spring and summer. What we do is we, we look at all that data and break it down and look at the percentage of young of the year poults and compare that to the number of adult females that are observed to, to get what's known as a, a poult per hen index. And that gives us a pretty good idea of how reproductive um, success was during the summer period. The Arkansas Game and Fish commissioned the survey back in 1982 and tracked populations with help from agency partners like the Wild Turkey Federation and the State Forest Service. But in recent years, Wood says the commission opened up the survey to the public, which has helped to get a more accurate read on population numbers. It's difficult to, you know, put a lot of stock into the numbers that we were we were obtaining and sort of trying to reverse those trends and 
we've made some positive strides in that direction over the last few years. Wood says beyond weather, the agency's habitat restoration efforts, particularly for northern bobwhite quail, which have a conservation distinction of near-threatened, have also helped rehabilitate a waning wild turkey population. As early as April of this year, the National Wild Turkey Federation estimated the number of wild birds in the state was below 100,000. You know, especially over the past you know decade or so, there's been a lot of emphasis on improving early successional habitats or vegetational communities, um, restoring, you know, prescribed fire to the landscape um, where historically, you know, this would have just been allowed to, you know, kind of run rampant, you know, as, as you have a lightning strike or something like that, you know, that fire that would be generated would just run through the understory and kind of clean off the leaf litter and debris and allow for more sunlight on the ground, direct, you know, sun to um, soil contact, which encourages a lot of uh, low plant growth, grasses and herbaceous plants that are, are really desirable from a, a nesting standpoint, but also from you know foraging and cover. Areas like the Arkansas Delta saw the biggest jump in wild turkeys reported. Wood says mostly because of the habitat. Major, you know, riparian corridors there: the White, Cache River, Mississippi River. Um, those areas typically are where our turkey populations are in that region. Uh, Gulf Coastal Plains, South Arkansas, where a lot of our private timberlands are. And then when you get into the Ozarks and the Washtaws, it was a little bit more spotty. We're just, you know, the central Ozarks did really well. Northwest Arkansas actually had a relatively decent year. And then there's just a lot of other pockets within there where the data wasn't as strong. So it didn't spread out, you know, our estimates didn't spread out across those areas as much as they would have if we had had more information to go on. Wood says conservative hunting limits and a shortened start date for the season have helped to increase the turkey population, and he thinks that's a good thing for everyone in Arkansas. There's obviously just aesthetic value for, for turkeys on the landscape. I mean, there some people might, might not think that they're the prettiest bird out there, but, you know, I, I think they're relatively pretty bird. They've got a lot of great plumage and, you know, so there's a lot of opportunity for folks just to, to be seeing those birds out on the landscape and hopefully see see them a little bit more often. So, you know, if they just enjoy the outdoors and enjoy seeing wildlife, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll be seeing a few more birds running around in the next few years. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Daniel Carruth produces his reports for Ozarks at Large in the Karen Taha News Studio. You can also hear Daniel's newscast each weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30 during Morning Edition on KUAF. The latest episode of Resilient Black Women, produced by KUAF, continues an examination of emotions. This time, Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson explore sadness. The conversation begins with a discussion about Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine. Joy recently visited the Little Rock Nine National Historic Site in Little Rock and shares some of what she learned and experienced there as a launching point for a discussion of sadness. Elizabeth Ann Eckford made history as a member of the Little Rock Nine, the nine African-American students who desegregated Little Rock Central High School in 1957. The famous image that we have of Elizabeth is when she was 15 years old, walking alone through a screaming mob in front of Central High School propelled by the crisis into the nation's living rooms, brought international attention to Little Rock. Elizabeth Eckford was born on October 4th in 1941 to Oscar and Bertie Eckford and is one of six children. 
On September 4, 1957, Eckford arrived at Central High School alone. The Little Rock Nine were supposed to go together, but their meeting place was changed the previous night. The Eckford family had no phone, and so Daisy Bates, the president of the NAACP at the time in Little Rock, um, she was intending to call and go to uh, the Eckford's house early that day, but never made it. As a result, Elizabeth Eckford walked alone. When she got off the bus a block from the school and tried to enter the campus twice, only to be turned away both times by the Arkansas National Guard troops. There, under orders from the governor, um, Falbus, she then confronted an angry mob of people, men, women, and teenagers, opposing the integration, chant, chanting, 2468, we ain't gonna integrate. Eckford made her way through the mob and sat on a bus bench at the end of the block. She was eventually able to board a city bus and went to her mother's workplace. Because of all the city high schools were closed the following year, because of all of this, and Eckford did not graduate from Central High School, but she had taken correspondence and night courses, so she had enough credits. She was accepted by Knox College in Illinois, but soon returned to Little Rock to be closer to her parents. Eckford served in the U.S. Army for five years. Um, Eckford was awarded the prestigious medal by the National Association of the Advancement for Colored People, as were the rest of the Little Rock Nine, and so was Daisy Bates um, back in 1958. In 1997, Elizabeth Eckford shared the Father Joseph Blitz Award presented by the National Conference for Community and Justice with Hazel Bryan Masery, a segregationist classmate who appears in the famous Will Counts photograph and during the Reconciliation Rally of 1997. Um, in 2018, Eckford released a book for young readers called The First Day, Bullied While Desegregating Central High. What I love about Elizabeth Eckford is that the famous picture we have of her is her sitting at the bus stop waiting for the bus to come after walking through a mob of what would have been some 100 white men, women, and teenagers. Um, and when I went, I went down there uh, to go get the tour from the, um, I went to go get the tour from the ranger. Her name was Rebecca. And she was like, at the, we got to sit at the bench where she sat waiting for the bus stop. And she was like, y'all, at this point, Elizabeth would have been soaked in human saliva. And she was wearing a brand new white dress that her mother had made for her. Um, and her, her dress just would have been soaked. In the picture, she has on sunglasses. And um, Rebecca, the ranger, uh, she told us she was like, there was a white photographer or news 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 reporter who came up to her and was like don't let them see you cry it's okay you're gonna be fine don't let them see you cry and as I'm like getting the tour when I heard that I I immediately just start to cry and I'm like no <laughs> this little she was 15 15 year old black girl just trying to get to school um not really understanding what would happen um that's what she was told at 15. Don't let them see you cry. And and I think his attempt was to comfort her and soothe her and be like, hey, it's okay. I'm, man, like, I, I didn't realize that this is what it was going to be like. But the, the chanting, the yelling, the screaming, they started spitting on her. Um, and she, she just waited there. And I think, and then Daisy Bates' husband tried to come and um, 
take her away because in the picture she's literally surrounded by reporters and and white people are just yelling you can see their faces are really angry and all the pictures and um daisy bates husband who was a black man he tried to come in and grab her but she really didn't know daisy bates husband and so she just sat there just waiting for the bus and it it looks like she's unbothered but you and i know <laughs> that she was what in fight flight or freeze and it was like make it to the bus stop so I can get home because where she walked from she had walked she was walking from her home and so in in later reports when she reports to CNN was that she knew she couldn't go back the way she came because people were were just surrounding her so she just needed to just wait at the bus and I think I think another woman came and did get on the bus with her but she would not get up and leave and go with any other adult um so that's that's Elizabeth Eckford, uh, and she is definitely a black woman that I'm like, I've got to keep telling her story. You can hear the entire latest episode of Resilient Black Women, this time focusing on sadness, by downloading the podcast from KUAF.com or any other podcast source. Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson release new episodes of the show every second and fourth Friday. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, we share highlights from another KUAF-produced podcast. The latest episode of Points of Departure takes us to Spain, an amusement park dedicated to helping sick children, their families, and friends. Points of Departure, a podcast from KUAF and Arkansas Global Changers, dedicated to connecting people from around the world, seeking local solutions to global problems. We'll share part of the latest episode on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Walton Arts Center presents Fran Lebowitz live and on stage November 29th. Lebowitz is an American author, social commentator, and regular NPR guest. In 2021, Netflix released a documentary series about Lebowitz called Pretend It's a City, directed by Martin Scorsese. She takes the stage for a night of humor and conversation, moderated by KUAF's Kyle Kellams. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org. KUAF is supported by Biotech Pharmacal. Owners Dale and Hope Benedict would like to wish everyone a happy holiday season. Their pure and hypoallergenic vitamins and supplements are available locally or online at biotechpharmacal.com. This is Ozarks at Large. This fall, the Latin artist group Duo Divinas won at the Latino Music Awards in Chicago. Best known for its community support, the duo was the only one from Arkansas to win an award. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith talked to artists Julieta and Azucena about their journey from their origins playing mariachi music to winning Tropical Fusion Artists of the Year. We'll hear their story, plus a performance of their latest release, Esclavos del Pasado. Pecado es decir que nos amamos por quedar bien con la gente. Pecado es estarlo intentando y no hacer lo suficiente. Pecado es vivir en la mentira ignorando la verdad. Pecado es vivir aparentando y evadir la Pecado es fingir una sonrisa y por dentro estar muy triste. Pecado es vivir con tantos miedos, no creer en ti y no ser valiente.
hear Duo Divinas hit Esclavos del Pasado in its entirety in just a few minutes. Julieta and Azucena came to the United States for the first time when they were young. With Julieta arriving at seven years old and Azucena at 16. Growing up in Mexicali, both were encouraged by their families to not play music. My parents and my culture always said that the music industry is not a place for women, that it was something dangerous, and that there were many unladylike aspects that weren't for a woman. So I was afraid. They put that fear in me, Julieta says. Nonetheless, Azucena and Julieta both had a passion for music, that dream influenced by artists like Juan Gabriel, Abba, Gloria Estefan, and the musicians and their families encouraged them to keep pursuing their goals. My family, especially from my mom's side, were musicians. My uncles played music, so it definitely grabbed my attention, but the dream was lost. I ended up going to the military instead, but my dream came back to life when I met Azucena. She encouraged me again to follow my dream. She taught me music and directed me vocally because I was totally lost. And through karaoke, I learned how to sing and I was more formally trained. That's how the duet started. Once I started practicing and then Azucena told me she learned how to create harmonies and said, let's start singing together as a duo. It's like magic. Music is the universal language of humans. Even if I'm singing in another language, it doesn't matter. Because we've had audiences that don't speak Spanish, but in some way we transmit that magic through our music and voices. And even if they don't understand it, they somehow always connect with that magic. They connect with that energy and they like it. At first, we doubted the language barrier. But it's not about the language. People connect with the emotions first, Julieta added. For me, I think it's primordially love, because the basis of everything in life is love. Self-love, love of life, love for people, love for our environment and for what's around us. I want to be known for love. We're almost like promoters of love because it's our truth. We would like to be known for love, passion, and our connection to people. Azucena says that the themes present are in the name itself, Duo Divinas. The name Divinas comes from the fact that I wanted our name to carry a meaning of what love is, but more self-love because it's like a message for me. For me, being divine is to recognize the divinity that is in you and to be grateful with that energy, that energy that gives us the engine and motivation every day to be able to wake up. And when we started using divine in our name, people didn't really recognize that word. It's very difficult to mention divine, and there are people who perhaps say divine is something superficial, but it's something more. Es algo más... Eh, deep, 
que superficial. But it's something more deep than superficial, Azucena says. After a long journey pursuing their music career that took them from television competition shows to playing mariachi to changing genres entirely, their work was highlighted at the Latin Music Awards in Chicago last September. Yo the whole time, I knew I wanted to enjoy and just live through the experience of an award show for the first time. I felt excited just knowing that we were nominated for a category. I kept thinking to myself, this is our song, our baby. And I just felt like, how could I not go? I had to be there. It's our song. It came out of this muse, a creative energy, and it was fruitful, which we didn't expect. I kept saying, it doesn't matter if we're winners, none of that matters because we have the honor of hearing and performing our song. And with the surprise we got afterwards, I was shocked. I didn't think it was real. The experience, according to the duo, felt surreal. We chatted with the other artists, all nervous. We eventually sat down and enjoyed the event. And then came the time for the categories. I kept thinking, is this real? And then our category came, and after they read the nominee list for the Tropical Fusion category, and right before they announced the winners, there was this pause, a moment of silence. Then someone from the table opened the letter with the winners inside, and my mind kept racing, thinking, this is it. This is the moment. I felt all of the nerves right then and there. Then they said our name, and we were in shock for a few seconds before walking up and accepting our award. Even when we left, we still couldn't believe what had happened. Looking towards the future and motivated by their award recognition, their dream is to live off their art. Esto de los reconocimientos importa mucho porque a veces el artista... This recognition matters a lot. Because artists, musicians, and all of those that are dedicated to art doubt ourselves because our profession isn't as highly valued in the world, like other careers. You can live off of most other professions, except for us. It costs creatives and artists a lot to be able to live from their art. That was Latin fusion artist Julieta and Azucena from Duo Divinas. They performed their latest single, Esclavos del Pecado, in the Furman Gardner Music Performance Studio. Pecado es seguir así. Escuchar tu corazón, pecado es vivir así, sin entender que es el amor. Somos esclavos del pecado, porque nos cuesta ser sinceros. Somos esclavos del pecado, viviendo. Daño. Que tire la primera piedra, 
sin amor. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. With Thanksgiving approaching, at least two Arkansas turkeys won't become holiday meals. Governor Asa Hutchinson pardoned the pair, named Randy and George, that's probably what I would name two turkeys, during a ceremony Monday on the steps of the state capitol. He also read a proclamation declaring this week Arkansas Turkey Week. Arkansas ranks third in the nation for turkey production. During his tenure in office, Hutchinson says he has pardoned 14 turkeys. Whether they come with merit or not from the boards of pardons and paroles, and because of disciplinary issues with these two turkeys, they came with a without merit recommendation on the pardon. And then I've noticed that they like to interrupt me. The more I talk, the more they want to talk. Should I give them the microphone? Ninth grade student Jackson Barber of Cabot raised the turkeys. He's a member of the Future Farmers of America, and he says he's optimistic about their life on his family's farm. I, I usually just, you know, take them back to the house, keep them, um, I try to keep them as, as healthy as possible, um, and just make sure they can try to let them last another Thanksgiving. I think he'll live up to at least a couple more years, um, if not five or six, I hope. Barber and Governor Hutchinson were joined for the ceremony by leaders of two Arkansas poultry processing companies, Butterball and Cargill, as well as members of the 4-H Club and FFA. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. An Arkansas drummer from Turkey Scratch in Phillips County would have an international career. Levon Helm was born on May 26, 1940, and knew by age six that he wanted a musical career. He joined rockabilly star Ronnie Hawkins' band at 17, which led to him meeting a group of Canadian musicians who would later gain fame as the band. After recording several hit albums, the band broke up in 1976 with a concert documented in the Martin Scorsese film The Last Waltz. Helm would later tour with his own groups and with the band when it reconstituted in the 80s. Helm acted in several movies, including a role as Loretta Lynn's father in Coal Miner's Daughter, and in 1993 co-wrote the autobiographical This Wheel's on Fire. Settling in Woodstock, New York, Helm recorded Grammy-winning albums in the early 2000s, held monthly midnight rambles at his home, and toured seasonally with the Levon Helm Band. He died of throat cancer on April 19, 2012. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. Tomorrow on Ozarks, a conversation with Phil Allen Jr., a pastor and author of the book The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. I start the book off with uh, the unseen violence for chapter one and, and seeing blackness as a liminal existence, like this in-between space where we see athletes, we see celebrities, musicians, you know, we see that image and we see the far, the other image of um, criminality, um, the presentation in media of uh, the hood, so we see these images, but what we don't see is, is the in-between, which is both the beauty and the tragedy. So we don't see the profiling. We don't see the daily profiling, violence, brutality, microaggressions that's experienced. We also don't see the beauty. We don't see the resiliency. We don't see the, the, the family life, the love. We don't see all those that in-between. That conversation and a quiz about all things Thanksgiving on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large.
KUAF is partnering with Walton Arts Center to give away two tickets to see Fran Lebowitz live and on stage November 29th. Lebowitz is an American author, social commentator, and regular NPR guest. She takes the stage for a night of humor and conversation, moderated by KUAF's Kyle Kellums. Entry for the giveaway is at KUAF.com. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Paris. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Roby Brock, Joy McGowan, Denisha Simpson, and Mark Christ. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. KUAF's membership director is Brett Ratliff. Additional material today about budgets and pardon turkeys came from our hardworking colleagues at KUAR Public Radio for Little Rock in Central Arkansas. Matthew produced today's show right here in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Matthew, the last day that we'll be co-hosting until next week. Yep. What are you working on that we'll hear next week? Well, uh, I plan on taking some time off for Thanksgiving. Well, but... yes, I didn't mean to insinuate you had to be working. <laughs> yes, that's right. I He's not he's not quite that uh, mean of a boss over here. Uh, I'm excited because I'm working on a story about Twitter. I uh, am addicted to Twitter, like uh, a few other folks are, and had an opportunity to talk with folks who tweet a lot about Arkansas, uh, hearing about what they plan on doing if Twitter comes to a slow crawl or, you know, what what their thoughts are about how Twitter has impacted their work. And that'll be on, uh, scheduled to be on Monday. That's right. Mm-hmm. What about you, Kyle? What I'm doing is looking for all the questions I had written for my conversation with Fran Leibowitz that I wrote back <laughs> in February, uh-huh. and then it was snowed out, and now I can't find them. So I'm either going to find them or I'm going to start from scratch, because that's Tuesday night. Yeah, perhaps there will be some divine intervention in the time between those two things. Well, I only have like 19 notebooks in my office. It's in one of those. <laughs> All right, we do have a show tomorrow. I'll be with you tomorrow at noon and 7 and on the Ozarks at Large podcast. Matthew, have a great Thanksgiving. Th- thanks. Same to you, Kyle. All right. Uh, from the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Be well.